0: You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. Today, I'm talking to Statu Korik, who's working full-time on the Dark programming language. We talk about how Dark recently announced a planned shift to being a programming language built around AI, as well as our own personal experiences so far exploring ChatGPT, Copilot, and other emerging AI tools. And now, AI tools today. Hey, Statu, thanks for joining me. Yep, thanks for having me. So you work on the Dark programming language, and you have for quite some time now. And there was a recent announcement, maybe less recent depending on when people are hearing this, (laughs) but it was a pretty big announcement about how Dark is sort of completely changing and becoming sort of an AI-first programming language. What's the story there?
1: So we were heading towards a known product, right? We had this product vision, and we were kind of tinkering along implementing features and, and whatnot towards that vision. And then this AI thing kind of happened, right? Open AI released, as Paul calls it, a magic box. Basically, suddenly we have like this very accessible AI thing that can help code gen. And of course, a lot of people have been using CodePilot and whatnot, but this is kind of like the next level. It got us thinking, what's programming going to be in X years? So, so Darklang is a programming language. It's an editor. It's just like a programming language with some specific features that fit well within an AI world. So. We saw this OpenAI magic box come out, and we kind of figured, oh, well, it kind of seems like Dark is well suited for that. Let's latch on to it and do it. And it's been really fun to work on and pivot towards that. What exactly it is, is unknown. Like what where Dark is within a year, don't exactly know where that's going to be. But it's fun to work towards that and experiment.
0: Okay, so these were conversations that started happening when ChatGPT came out. I think that was probably the turning point. Gotcha. Okay. One thing that's kind of confused me, this is a bit of a tangent, but I've been trying to answer the question, why now is there suddenly such a huge amount of discussion around AI? And When I say a huge amount, the specific thing that's different about this is that I've seen a lot of technologies, you know, hype cycles over the years. What's unusual about this is that non-programmers are talking about it a lot suddenly. And what's surprising to me is that I would have thought if that were going to happen, where you see it on like cable news is talking about AI, I would have thought that would have happened when Chat GPT came out, not when GPT-4 came out. And what's interesting to me is that it seems like when ChatGPT came out, I thought, as apparently the dark folks did, wow, this is a huge deal. This is a really big step. And to be fair... Mostly, it was a UI improvement or UX improvement. It wasn't so much that Chat GPT, at least in my experience, did such a better job than GPT three on its own without the chat UI, but rather that the chat UI made it really, really accessible in a way that it wasn't before, because you'd have to go back and like redo your prompt every time. Yeah. So I'm surprised that GPT four seems to be the thing that made people talk about it so much more. I do have some theories about that, but one of the things that's interesting in the context of this discussion is that. That kind of shows to me that the chat GPT difference, I guess, shows that there's a lot of room for improving how much benefit we can get out of AI systems, or at least large language models for sure, based on how they're presented and not just what the underlying algorithm is capable of producing. Because in terms of what chat GPT could produce compared to what you could get just GPT-3 to produce, it's not that different. It's mainly that the ergonomics are much better. And I think it's like a sort of an open field to explore. It's like, what happens if you have a capable large language model that produces useful results and you sort of build a language around that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. And like, how do you design the language, both in terms of like syntax and whatever, and how do you design it in terms of all kinds of user experience? It's really interesting. Back to your thing about why did it suddenly get big or why your people are people talking about it? I don't know. I, I don't necessarily relate it to like GPT-4. Maybe I haven't been watching the news in correspondence with this big. Open AI announcements to, to catch that I was that exact point. But my theory is that is that like GPT and ChatGPT in general, it's been growing. And much like back when the old AOL days where you could chat with chatbots then, I feel like it just became such an accessible thing and kind of itched a part in your brain. We're like, oh, well, we know how to chat. We can interface with this thing. I suspect that that's a big part of why people kind of latched onto it.
0: Yeah, well, I have two hypotheses about why it seemed to get, and this is my perception, but I'm pretty confident that that perception is (laughs) accurate, that after GPT-4 came out, it suddenly became a much bigger topic of discussion very Mm -hmm. abruptly. My two hypotheses, one is that GPT-3 was not nearly as good at taking standardized tests as GPT-4 is or or scoring well on them. And so the numbers of, in terms of how GPT-4 scores on them, not only are they very impressive. It scores extremely well in them. But also, it's a big improvement over GPT-3. And although it's hard to, or it's easy to forget that GPT-3 came out, I think it was a year between GPT-3 and GPT-4, if I'm remembering right. It wasn't that long between ChatGPT, which feels like, "quote unquote" the most recent release, and GPT-4. Now, of course, they were working on GPT-4 before ChatGPT came out. But in terms of the feeling of the pace of releases it feels like chat gpt came out oh this is a big deal and then gpt4 comes out a couple of months later it's like whoa the pace of improvement is absolutely staggering but it's not like gpt5 is going to come out in another couple months it's like these things take a long time to train a lot of money and from what i've heard they're planning on finishing the training set for gpt5 at the end of this year and then they'll release it once it's done training they do all the safety stuff and write papers and whatnot yeah so I wonder what that's going to do to that narrative. Will people suddenly say, oh, it seems like it's slowing down, but maybe it's not. It's just, <laughs> it's just that was the pace all along. I mean, we'll see. There's One of the things that's bizarre about this whole conversation is it's like we've opened up this box, and inside there's just this gigantic mountain of question marks. It's like, what's the future going to hold? What's the near-term, long-term yeah, future going to hold? And it's like, I don't know. Nobody knows. <laughs> We're just finding out. Yeah, and in the meantime, there's so many products
1: that are just being filled into this space. All of a sudden, every product is adding AI stuff like Microsoft Word and all these different things Are trying to figure out how do we use this? How do we like either jump on this hype train or actually create features that people want? Maybe a little bit of both.
0: Yeah, and I have a sense that a lot of companies were already working on these things and there's suddenly a rush to announce. Mm. Whereas previously, it might have been somewhat of a behind the scenes, behind the curtain. We'll just keep working on this thing. And then eventually when we have something that we're proud of, we'll demo it. And now there seems to be a bit of a cascade effect where nobody wants to be caught not having announced that they're integrating AI into their Google Docs or Microsoft, whatever, or all the AI startups are suddenly like, we got to announce that we're working on an AI thing too. And I think on the one hand, that's a sensible thing to do. I mean, certainly a large amount of hype is deserved in this case. The potential is very high. I've been using ChatGPT daily, and I'm still learning how to unlock things and where it's useful and where it's not useful or where it's a net positive and where it's a net negative. I've definitely had some time where I look back and I said, wow, I spent a couple hours on that and I could have just done it myself in 20 minutes and this did not get me to a better outcome. But I don't know which things are that way yet. I don't know which things are gonna turn out to be a good use of time in retrospect or not when I'm using GPT. And I don't think anybody does. I think everybody's figuring that out, especially because every time a new release comes out with a new training set, some of your past assumptions are invalidated and you don't necessarily know which ones. Yeah. So I think there are it, going to be tricks that persist, but also tricks that don't persist over time. It feels to me like
1: more things are possible than we're good at doing in terms of prompt engineering. Mm-hmm. You can have a specific goal that you want ChatGPT to solve. And if you give it just subtly different prompts or vastly different prompts, you can get vastly different results. Yep. And that active prompt engineering, it feels very much like the muscle of like Googling well. And no one has the skills yet to really know how to prompt well, especially like in an efficient way. There's, you know, tons of study around how to prompt engineer and, and and all kinds of stuff. So I guess people do have kind of have some idea. But in an intuitive sense where you're just sitting down and you're like playing with Chat GPT, like what's in a very efficient way to get it to do what I want? Like it's a tool right. that you don't quite have, oh, you just switch these two flips and, and click these buttons and you get to your result like most tools. It's kind of like this person you have to deal with.
0: And I think there's at least two parts to that. One is, let's say that I have decided I want it to do this thing for me. What words do I choose to get the best outcome there? But the second question is identifying when this is the right tool for the job or not. I think there's going to be a lot of experimentation. Another thing that's important to remember right now is, I don't know what the term for this is, maybe it's the Instagram effect or something like that, but whenever you see demos... They're always cherry-picked. Although I guess maybe if people are doing this in live streaming, that might be a good example of a non-cherry-picked thing. But if you read a blog post about, I did this thing with ChatGPT and it was amazing, there's a pretty good chance that for every blog post like that, there were a bunch of others where people tried to do a similar thing. Maybe even that same person who wrote the blog post (laughs) tried several times and it didn't work. And they didn't get to an amazing exploding head emoji outcome. It just kind of was like, yeah, pretty impressive, but didn't actually get to a really good result. I know this because, well, at least from my personal experience, I've tried several times where I've done the actual experimental thing. I was trying to get ChatGPT to help me implement some Unicode library in Rock, And this is a really studied thing. It's a really well-specified thing. It's implemented in lots of different languages that are certainly in the training set. So I figured, okay, I want to like parse some UTF-8, just some raw bytes, and then get a string out of them. Surely I can have ChatGPT help me with this. And sure enough, I was able to have it help me with this. It understands Rock quite well, even though it's not in its training set, which is cool. Like If I ask it, what's Rock, the programming language, it's like, I don't know. When I ask it about myself, it just knows about my Elm stuff. Because I guess at the end of 2021, it wasn't Rock, was not uh, in the public eye enough, or at least not enough to make it into its training set. So it really has no idea how this programming language works. But if I copy-paste in, like, hey, here's a partially implemented parse UTF-8 function, uh, finish it, it'll write a, a working, complete implementation. The problem is when I say working, what I mean is like it'll compile and run. I don't mean it, it's correct. <laughs> it's not correct. But I did ask it to write some test cases for it. And I was like, okay, these test cases look pretty useful, but I don't have confidence that they're correct because, first of all, the implementation generated wasn't correct. So why would I believe the test cases are correct? And second a lot of these UTF-8 test cases are just like, okay, here's a couple of bytes, like a couple of numbers, and then it says, yeah, this should parse into this string. And I'm like, okay, but should it? <laughs> I don't know what those numbers are. I haven't memorized like what the you know, Unicode codes are for these different code points. But then what I thought of was, okay, I can ask it to rewrite those tests in Rust. And So then I could look at the Rust tests and the Rock tests that it generated side by side and say, okay, those are the same numbers and they're producing the same string literals. And then I could run the Rust tests and confirm that they actually ran successfully. And so by using that combination of tricks, I was able to get it to generate a bunch of test cases for me and write them for me. I think the test case writing part definitely saved me time, but I ended up completely giving up on asking it to successfully write a working Unicode implementation, like parts UTF-8. I just wrote wrote the rest of it myself. It took like 20 minutes because I was just looking at a reference implementation. And the code that I wrote was cleaner than the non-working code that it had written. Like it was nicer to read and I refactored stuff more nicely. So my takeaway there was, okay, at least for this use case, it's not something I would want to use for implementation, but it is something I would want to use for test cases. But of course, I've heard plenty of stories of people using it for implementation successfully. It's just this particular thing that I was doing, it didn't work well. And I wonder how you get that intuition before you go in and waste a bunch of time trying to wring water from a stone and get it to implement this thing for you. If you just say, you know what, I'm just going to do this myself and ask it to help me with the test cases. And that's it.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting muscle. I think we're all going to develop over time. I think Part of it also is having either pre-training in some way or having a kind of go-to prompt that you prefix all other prompts with to like give it enough context about Rock. Like it's really unknown how that's going to play out. I found that, for example, Dark is also not a thing that ChatGPT knows much about and knows a little bit about as of a few years ago. But but generally what I've had to resort to is like right F-sharp, but with these differences. So what do you do when you're having it generate rock? Do you do something like that? Or you just typically paste in code and you have it based off of that?
0: Oh, yeah. I I don't really tell it anything. I just paste in the rock code and I'm like, hey, you know, work with this. And it figures it out. Sometimes it is funny that sometimes it clearly thinks it's looking at some sort of Elm or Haskell variation because it'll insert things that exist in Elm and Haskell, but like have a different name in rock, which I can't possibly know. But it's like, oh, good guess. But those are extremely easy to fix. Like it had like a plus plus operator, which Elm and Haskell have a plus plus operator and rock doesn't. I was like, oh, okay, fine. Yeah, (laughs) no problem. But yeah, in general, I mean, it picks up on syntax cues very well in my experience. It's funny, like, I would have thought that this Unicode in particular would have been a case where if anything, I would have needed to help it with the rock code part of things because that wouldn't be in the training set, but the Unicode implementation surely would be in the training set multiple times. But it turned out to be the opposite. It was totally fine at figuring out what syntactically valid rock code was just from the very minimal context I'd given it, which was like, hey, finish this function. And what it struggled with was the Unicode part, which I would have thought would be the trivial part. And in fact, literally what I ended up doing was taking one of the like just reference implementations of Unicode parsing UTF-8 and translating it directly into Rock, which is what I wanted it to do in the first place. But again, that doesn't mean that, to your point about people getting better at prompt engineering, that doesn't mean that somebody else couldn't have figured out what the magic incantation was to get it to do it correctly. One of the quick tips I've learned for making GPT better is to ask it to be good at what you want it to do. Like you start by saying, you are good at programming in these ways. I've also tried it for writing documentation, but so far kind of a mixed bag, but it has been good at coming up with examples for documentation, which is handy. But I'll say like, hey, you're going to write some documentation. You are good at writing documentation. You are clear and concise and good at explaining things. And then go on to tell it what the actual task is. And it's like, okay, I'll I'll adopt that persona. That's
1: interesting. I wonder why that is. I guess there's some link there, right? It's reaching into the part of the brain where it's, again, I'm trying to turn this into a person. It's reaching to its part of the brain where it's like, oh, I'm writing blog posts or documentation and then you tell it's good, it's like, oh, I need to like go in this subsector of just the good documenters. That's interesting.
0: Well I guess because of course there's lots of demos of asking it to adopt different personas, right? You say like write me a poem in the style of this rapper or something. Yeah. So if you don't specify a quote, unquote, persona, which ones it going to adopt? Is it going to adopt a particular one? Or is it just going to adopt an amalgamation of everything which is going to tend towards the median rather than towards the good documentary thing? Because I guess, for all it knows, maybe you want documentation written in the style of someone who's not good at writing documentation, you didn't specify. So it's interesting to try to figure out mental models of these things because like you said i mean we, you know we always try to anthropomorphize sort of reflexively because because it's chat right because we're chatting chatting is something we normally do with humans but at the end of the day it works very differently from the human mind like i would never talk to someone and say hey can you write me some documentation and be like and by the way like assume that you're good at writing documentation right <laughs> They'd would be like what do you mean by that <laughs> right but here it seems to be effective now then again there's another thing that I can already feel myself doing which is since learning that trick I now use that habitually and reflexively whenever I'm prompting it I don't even know if it's necessary all the time it's not like I go back and A B test it especially because and this is another thing that's like weird about it compared to most programming tools is I don't know if you try this but sometimes I will give it the exact same prompt in two different conversations and I'll get different answers so knowing that it makes it pretty hard to A B test something unless I try to do it with a very large sample size or something It's not like I can just say, oh, I'll try it with and without telling it it's good at the thing, and then I will discover which answer is better because it was like, well, was it because of that or was it just because you rolled the dice again? I don't know. So (laughs) there's a lot of of variables. I feel
1: like two months ago, I was doing a lot with temperature gauge in the GPT kind of OpenAI chat window, not the chat window, but the, the GPT window. I feel like I've gravitated away from that, I guess, as we get more chat that temperature gauge is is less used. The A/B testing, I guess the opportunity is a little bit gone now. I've been thinking about how that temperature gauge or other controls would make themselves into a dev tool. You know, copilot, for example, when you're just typing in stuff right now, it gives you a few samples you can kind of cycle between. But what if you want to tell it, no, give me more wild answers. I want you to think more creatively.
0: So you mentioned the temperature parameter. I actually did not know about this. Can you explain what that is? I know they get mad if you explain it the wrong way, but I'll try.
1: (laughs) The temperature gauge is basically, so zero temperature, it'll be try to be less creative and one, it'll be more creative. I think that that's how people interpret it. But the reality that they try to explain is that it'll give you a wider variety of answers at one versus at zero. And so, for example, if I'm trying to get it to write a poem, I'll set it to a gauge of like 0.8. Like I want to give a very creative response, but if I'm trying to implement like an add function or something like that, I want to be zero. And in trying to gauge what the temperature should be, what was an interesting challenge that I feel like I haven't been exercising that muscle because the control wasn't there anymore.
0: Um, Or maybe it's
1: there and I just haven't been looking at it.
0: According to what I just looked up on the internet, although I think it would have been funny to ask ChatGPT itself that, (laughs) I think that I'm like noticing is I, I spend an increasing amount over time asking chat GPT for things rather than doing an internet search. In this case, I just did a search. And apparently, at least according to Reddit a month ago, you can set it by setting temperature equals and then a number between 0 and 1, like a decimal in the chat. And that's it.
1: Oh, you can like talk to it in the chat to do it. That's interesting.
0: Apparently, yeah. We'll see. I haven't tried it yet, but now I'm going to experiment with that. <laughs> so, yeah, thanks for the tip. I mean, this is a good example of the type of stuff that there isn't a book on this yet. There isn't one place you can go to say, "We well, you know all about how ChatGPT works and how to get the most out of it. And here are all the tips and tricks. It's just sort of folklore where, where people are trying things out and finding them out. And yeah, this is, I guess, a feature that used to exist and was removed from the UI, but still exists in this chat form. And you knew part of that and I didn't know the other part, but because of what I happened to look it up and you know, these things are changing all the time, it's a very chaotic experience <laughs> trying to explore this thing.
1: Yeah, and it's tempting to be super engaged with each individual model and try to understand what's going to work well for this model, what's not going to work well for this model. I've definitely found myself doing that from time to time, but I'm doing my best to limit how much I do that and kind of understand that there's going to be models in the future. Like I could exercise and try to learn all the prompt engineering tricks, but they are folklore and they're kind of ever changing. So yeah, it feels slightly a waste of time to spend too much time on it. On the other side, like I actively want to use it for current goals. So it's a trade
0: off, right? It's hard to calibrate how much time to invest in GPT 4 knowing that GPT five will come out and invalidate some amount of those prompt engineering tricks. And in fact, maybe some of them will become bad habits where it's you have to unlearn some things because maybe for a GPT-5, it's actually a mistake to tell it to adopt a certain persona of being good because it defaults to being good if you didn't specify. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, we're going to find out.
1: Either GPT or other providers entirely. I haven't tried others too much. Obviously, there's like roll your own LLM and deal with that the whole way and pinecone vector database your way to success. But... There's also like all the existing providers. I'm curious to watch that space.
0: So far from what I've tried at least and what I've seen, it was impressive if you'd never seen any GPT, but it's not actually really helpful. Yeah, it's At not least far. for what I'm doing. It's, it hasn't crossed that threshold yet. It'll be interesting to see what happens. I'm assuming they will eventually, but they don't feel they're there yet. I've definitely heard, you mentioned Copilot earlier. I've heard mixed responses in terms of Copilot's usefulness. Uh, I have heard people say as much as Copilot is like half my job. It does like half the work that I did, and it saves me 50% of my day in terms of savings. But for me, I have just turned it off. Other people who have had this same experience where it just feels like it's someone who's spamming wrong suggestions at you all day. It's really distracting and not helpful. Occasionally, it'll get something that is correct. I'm like, great, tab, complete. Thank you. But when it does, it's so short that I'm like, "This was not much help." And then usually it'll give me something that's either wrong, or the worst case is where it gives me something that's long and wrong, and I'm like, "Ooh, this is exciting! I won't have to write out this whole thing." And I look at it, I'm like, "No, what are you talking about?" End up writing it myself anyway after having spent the time to be distracted and read through the wrong suggestion.
1: I feel like 30% of my job has been kind of copilot written, or at least of my code has been copilot written. But there are definitely times where it will suggest bad things, but I want it to do that. I love having this pair programmer built into my editor that's just giving me garbage. <laughs> <laughs> because I'd much rather garbage than silence. Having someone at your side just kind of give you ideas or something and bouncing someone off, it gives you focus, it gives you direction. Even if it's just garbage, I think it's really useful to have this tool engage with you as you're typing. That's like the main feature for me. It's is not necessarily writing good code It's just getting something out that I can massage into its good.
0: Yeah, I know what you're talking about. I think maybe you and I just have different sort of value functions on how we feel about that experience. Mm -hmm. Engaging is a good word for it. Because when there is this constant, I'm about to write some code. And normally, this is where I would stop and think about what I'm about to write. And instead, it's like, hey, here's a suggestion. It does get me immediately thinking about okay, well, is that a correct suggestion or not? And I'm kind of in like micro-reviewing mode all the time. I think for me, the reason that I ended up turning it off or turning off the auto-suggestion at least is that I felt that the pause that I was going to make there was going to be shorter before I would write the correct code. And having my focus pulled away all the time felt unhelpful. The comparison to pair programming is interesting though because when I'm pair programming with somebody, mainly I'm mentoring them. But looking back, I would remember that... So somebody who is apt to write the wrong thing, let's say, significantly often, first of all, even the novices that I would program with, I don't think... At least they wouldn't make the same types of mistakes that Copilot makes. Mm -hmm. They might not know how to do something, so maybe they would pause and say, I'm not sure what to do here, which Copilot doesn't do. But they would have fewer, I am confident this is the answer, and it's just totally wrong (laughs) moments. But I do remember feeling that this is not making me productive. This is more of like an investment in them. I'm trying to help them get up to speed, which with Copilot, I don't feel that I'm helping it get up to speed. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. But going back to Dark, an interesting question is, well, two interesting questions. One, to what extent is this experience going to change as Copilot gets different releases of GPT or Codex powering it? One of the things I'm quite curious to see is, once it's powered by GPT-4, does it give better answers? I would assume so. But does it give them as quickly? I would assume not. Because whenever I ask GPT-4 in ChatGPT for an answer compared to 3.5, it is much slower to give me the answer on 4. The answer is a higher quality. So I've actually, my typical workflow is, I will switch over to my pinned chat GPT tab, I will ask it a question and I will switch back to whatever I was doing and then I will, it's like an asynchronous thing. And actually, now that I think of this, I hadn't thought about this until just now. I think maybe that's what is a big part of my heuristic for web search or not, is do i think i can get the answer faster with a web search than i can by asking gpt4 because it takes so long to write out the answer i mean i say write out but it's like predicting the tokens but computing the answer is a lot slower if i think i'm gonna you know get a quick hit on my search results and just get the answer very quickly yeah i mean it's actually several seconds faster usually chat gpt takes i don't know 30 plus seconds to give me an answer on gpt4 for any given prompt that I give it, as long as it's going to give me multiple paragraphs. I should time that sometime. But that's what it feels like, is usually like 30 seconds plus. So it's plenty of time where I'm not going to sit there and just watch it you know, type out the whole answer. I'm going to switch tab or switch back to my editor and do something else while I'm waiting for it to come up with the answer, which is not great from a workflow perspective. But of course, the whole pitch of Copilot is that it's instant. So how do you reconcile those? If the superior model gives better answers, but takes longer to get them, is that actually the trade off that you want? I don't know. But I, I haven't been gotten off the Copilot X wait list yet, so I can't I can't try it out yet. Sure. And it's
1: a useful trade-off to consider, the timing thing. And the other part of that trade-off is if I ask this question to ChatGPT and I continue that conversation later, it has that as context? Yes. And so it's as much as I absolutely get frustrated by GPT taking too long, because it, it feels like it's annoying at this point. Right.
0: It's definitely annoying. It's like
1: I I used to be like this quick thing and all of a sudden like, oh, you got slightly fancier and you're like three times as slow. Like, you know, I'm going to go back to the fast version.
0: But I don't want wrong answers. So
1: so I always (laughs) choose GPT-4 for the dropdown, even though it's annoying. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I usually work on this ultra wide monitor here and I keep ChatGPT like it has its own, let's say fifth of the screen that's just like slivered on the left. So I just like put it over there. Uh And that's just like my chat. It's just my, (laughs) yeah, I should name them at some point.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I definitely think that there's a trade off between context. And I don't know what the term is. I mean, people have said like hallucinations and things, but I don't think this is specifically what they're talking about. But I have noticed that, yes, it is nice to keep a conversation going because it keeps the context from earlier. But there comes some point where the amount of context that it's built up starts to cause problems. And I start to see a degradation in the quality of output. And so at that point, I'll usually sort of reboot and just start a fresh conversation with like, okay, here's where we've gotten. Let's use that as our new starting point. And then it starts to give me better answers again. Yeah. And I don't, again, this is one of those things that I haven't figured out exactly where that line is yet and how to, how to get the most out of it. But it's definitely one of the tricks that I've learned is just at some point, There's too much built up context for it to chew on every time it's regenerating. So you know what, let's just start fresh with this is the only relevant context and all the other stuff was just getting to this point. Don't don't worry about it anymore. I've also seen and I assume this is just bugs that will get worked out, but I've definitely seen several times where it got partway through writing an answer and just gave up like it just didn't finish writing the answer or I get an error message and I just hit retry. And then the second time it works while giving me a completely different start to the answer Uh, Like because of that, again, you know, you roll the dice every time you ask it something. Although maybe not if you set temperature to zero. I have to try that. I felt that
1: it was like I've run out of tokens or something like that, or run out of energy. I feel like that's probably not the case, but I just type, keep going, keep going. Oh, interesting. Like if I'm asking for something really long, you just say keep going, and it, it, yeah, I just keep going for like five times in a row until it's done. Whatever the thought is, like if you're writing, like, like give me a ten-page essay on X, Y, Z. It will eventually drift to garbage land, but for a while you can just type "keep going" and it'll it'll be happy to keep going.
0: <laughs> okay, thank you. See, this is another trick to pick up. I didn't so for some reason it didn't occur to me. I mean, I look at that, I'm like, oh, this is a software bug. I guess I need to ask it to redo it. It never occurred to me to just ask and be like, hey, keep going. <laughs> yeah, it just, it just
1: needs some encouragement.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think this is a really classic example of why everybody feels, not I shouldn't say everybody, but a ton of people, myself included, feel like we're on very uncertain, shaky ground here is is that it's a tool that's useful, but really in pretty fundamental ways doesn't feel like the software tools that we're used to. It feels to some extent like I've become a beginner again at this one thing while still being good at other aspects of programming. And I would draw a comparison to Like, a couple years ago, I got really into guitar after having not really done anything with it since I was, like, a little kid. So I I had these two worlds, like, programming, where I've been doing it for so long that it's just very second nature to me, and guitar, which was very new to me. And I was was learning all these things, and I felt like a beginner, and I could switch between the two modes. I'm like, okay, I'm doing guitar stuff now. I'm a beginner again. I'm doing programming stuff. I'm an expert again. What's weird is that this is programming, but I still feel like a quasi-beginner, like, in some ways, while also because it feels so different from all the programming tools I've ever used in my life. But at the same time, it's still programming, and there's still a lot of aspects where I am an expert, and it's weird to hold those two ideas in my head at the same time with the same tool. Yeah. yeah most
1: software tools that we use, too, it's either you know the tricks, and you click the buttons in the right sequence, and you get the output. And it's like, you can feel whether you're good or not. And then with ChatGPT, it's not even whether you're good or not, it's whether you know... If you're good or not, for example, <laughs> you have this self doubt of oh well, maybe if I was better at writing prompts, I could get this done faster and no one knows how to like again, there's no book on how to write prompts. there are websites dedicated to it, and they're actually pretty good on like how to like intuitively write prompts, but there's no like prompt tutor that you can instantly go to and you know have tell you what's doing wrong versus with software you know whether that test passed or failed, so it's I think it adds a little bit more uncertainty, especially in this world where a lot of people are saying, oh, or it's going to replace your jobs, blah, blah, blah. That uncertainty is interesting.
0: Right. Well, and speaking of uncertainty and jobs, I mean, one of the big question marks that is in the giant pile of question marks is, at what point is it going to affect your job and by how much? And, you know, of course, the big scary one is, is it going to completely replace my job? And I'm sure everybody in knowledge work is asking themselves that. If you're on a construction site, probably not worried about ChatGPT replacing your job. But if you're doing something where primarily what you interact with is a keyboard, then it's a reasonable question. And there are all sorts of plausible narratives. One plausible narrative is like, yep, everyone's going to be unemployed immediately, which it's on the one hand plausible because this is to some extent unprecedented. On the other hand, I mean, you look back at unemployment levels through multiple you know technological revolutions and somehow people still manage to stay employed at similar levels and yes there are periods of disruption but there's never been a time when it's like yeah everybody nobody can work anymore that's it it's always that you know things shift but they don't result in people having nothing to do yeah
1: yeah there's there's a big difference between jobs being doable by ai or sorry for jobs being replaceable and replaced so you know eventually there's there's this point where one person can do the job of like 10 Copywriters or, or whatever. And then I feel like the job market, one narrative, as you're saying, might be that jobs shift to be more creative, to have more greenfield stuff. If many jobs that require kind of manual, creative, rote work are taken, then maybe the, maybe new jobs are created where.
0: Well, and also there can be a question of, you know, if, one way of looking at what you just described, where one person can do the same job that it used to take 10 people to do. Another way of looking at that is that now that that work becomes more accessible from a consumer standpoint, you can now take something that used to be unaffordable to you. And now the price goes down. And so now more people can't afford it. And so they buy it, which means that the person who, you know, previously 10 people were doing this one job, now there's one person but maybe there's 10 times as much demand because it costs less to have that one thing done, like copywriting, for example. And so maybe there's 10 times the demand or maybe even more than 10 times the demand. So maybe there's more copywriters in the world. But an important factor there is if I'm the copywriter or you know, the programmer in this case, what if I like the old way? I prefer the old way of doing things. I don't want 90% of my job to be prompts. I want it to be you know, something other than that. And I think there's a legitimate concern that people have about hey, I understand that this is going to change my job in some way I don't know if I'm going to like the new way I'm trying to keep an open mind about that and say like, I don't know, you know, maybe I won't, I've been doing programming for decades, I really love it, but hey, like, maybe I'll love this other thing too, I don't know I really need to try and give it the benefit of the doubt and like, not just assume that I'm going to dislike it because it's different.
1: Yeah the, uh, I have greatly enjoyed manually writing Call it artisanal code. I found great joy in my life from spending countless hours creating software, and then all of a sudden, this AI guy comes along and he's gonna like do my job in, in ten times the speed. And and it, it's kind of like, are there going to be code shops in twenty years that that say, oh, well, we handwrite all of our code? It's you know, organically manufactured
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> organic code. Wow.
1: <laughs> yeah you know i am into like old woodworking tools and that like there's a whole sector of even the woodworking world that intentionally stays behind the curve by decades sure i'm curious if there's any level of that to code i doubt it you know i don't i don't think anyone's going to be like grasping on to oh my code i must manually write it
0: well uh, you might be surprised i could actually see in some industries where that's actually a thing that you want for example hey this is a pacemaker that's going to be installed into my heart. This has been certified. No LLM wrote any line of code in this pacemaker. I'm like, you know what? I actually feel better about that, at least today. Maybe there'll come a time where I'm like, no LLM was involved. What are you doing over there? That's risky. Humans are so much worse at writing code than LLMs are. I don't think we're close to that, but you know that could swap places at some point.
1: Yeah, very well. It's the same thing where financial institutions are all kind of industries.
0: There's yeah, there's, there's plenty of industries where today I feel much more confident knowing that only humans wrote that code. And you could say, oh, well, you know, if humans are reviewing it, then what's the problem? But the issue is that, and this actually gets into one of the things that I've observed already, is that it's pretty easy still when reviewing code to miss edge cases. I mean, a famous example of this is Heartbleed, where... How many people looked at that OpenSSL code and did not notice that there was this you know, potential bug in it? Reviewing code is a powerful tool that we have. It certainly catches a lot of bugs. But if the bugs are really subtle in the sense where it's not the type of mistake that a human would normally make, I don't know that we're that awesome at catching those just by reviewing them. And yes, we can ask ChatGPT or, or Copilot or whatever to write tests for us as well. The problem with tests is that even 100% test coverage does not guarantee that you don't have bugs. It's that for those particular set of inputs that you have chosen, yes, all the code paths are exercised at some point, but that does not mean that there are not still combinations of inputs that give you bad outputs. So, we have never to my knowledge in the history of programming found a system which successfully guarantees that this code does exactly what you want short of something along the lines of a proof that it does what you want and Maybe the answer is that people end up actually valuing proofs more than they have before. And Agda's you know, stocks, metaphorically speaking, starts to go up. And a lot of people are using proof assistance because that's the most reliable way to get LLM-generated code to be actually verified. I doubt it. I think it's more likely that you know, we'll, we'll resort to bags of tips and tricks, as we always have. Yeah, I think so. So along those lines, something else that I've been thinking about is what do programming languages look like in the short term, medium term, long term? Long term, maybe eventually we talk to computers directly with our brains. We don't even use pixels anymore. And so who knows? Uh, at some point, I assume programming languages you know, will not be a thing anymore. Who has any idea how far away we are from that? But in the short term, certainly like for the here and now, programming languages are obviously going to continue to be you know, as popular as they always have been as a way of writing code. And in the medium term, it seems to me that more and more we will have AIs of some sort, probably large language models, maybe other things, synthesizing the code, that is to say, like writing it, rather than writing it by hand, uh, like we currently do with, you know, the keyboard exclusively, or at least like using the keyboard to write out all the characters (laughs) one at a time, give or take autocomplete. But in a world in which creating new code is more and more done by AIs, then reviewing code and you know verifying tests that were written by AIs becomes a significantly bigger percentage of what we're spending our time on. And so the Heartbleed example is interesting because that's a, a pretty good example of where, bizarrely, syntax starts to matter more. Because the whole problem with Heartbleed was that when you're reviewing it, it was like they... C does not require curly braces around your if blocks. And if you omit the curly braces, as was done here, then it just runs the next line inside the conditional, and then everything after it you know, continues on. And so this was a case where they'd omitted the curly braces, and it looks like if you read the code, it was going to do these two things inside the if conditional. But actually, only one of them was inside the conditional, and the second one always ran, and that was where the exploit originated. That's a perfect example of how making code easier to review and having stronger guarantees about the code such that you don't need to keep as much context in your head as the human reviewer becomes relevant and valuable and interestingly it seems like that by a happy coincidence lines up pretty well with i think things that make for a good programming language in general in today's world so the short term and the medium term seem to be pretty well aligned there i think there's some considerations around like you know boilerplate and like how much of a concern that is if you know the computer is able to re- write the boilerplate versus what are the characteristics of the boilerplate? Is it easy to review? Is it quick to review? Yada yada. But it does seem like even if you're designing a programming language to sort of be AI aware and to interface with AI well, the fundamental characteristics of the language it seemed to still be focused around how do we make this as useful as possible for humans, and that fundamental aspect doesn't seem to be that different than it is in like sort of a pre-AI world.
1: Yeah, composable statically typed languages are predictable, right? And I feel like predictability is something that code generation leverages very well.
0: Now, do you mean predictability in terms of helping the AI generate code or predictability in terms of helping the human who's reviewing the code predict what it's going to do? Or both? Both. I think both. (laughs) Okay.
1: Yeah, I agree. And there's also, I mean, so that you can write tests and such, I think static analysis tools are probably going to be leveraged more and more, which feel more, again, are, are in my experience, better, they handle kind of statically type functional languages better than, than other languages. Maybe that's a very naive take, but intuitively speaking, composable static languages are are theoretically easier to, to statically analyze and to fuzz test against and whatnot
0: one of the questions that i have to be sort of self-honest here and ask myself is so i've been really into functional programming for a long time and at least a decade now (laughs) it's been sort of the focus of my career i have to ask you know myself to what extent does that calculus change in a post ai world and so far i haven't really found any reasons to change but i i think it's important that i keep myself honest by asking that question and trying to you know be okay with the answer being actually no imperatives awesome. Now, one of the things that you know, you mentioned predictability, and we talked earlier about sort of the the context window of how much it can sort of quote, unquote, keep in its head, but there's that 32,000 current token limit. And apparently, raising the token limit is hard without because there are trade offs and other things. It's not like you can just crank that up and and no problem. Oh, we don't worry, it's 64k. Now, no downsides, there are downsides. So the context window, as I understand it is one of those things that is I don't want to say it's a fundamental limitation because I think that will probably not age well as a prediction, but but rather that it seems like you can get a lot of mileage today out of using tricks to get around the context window. And I've seen some demos of people doing things like sort of using it like kind of like the stack where you sort of push things into the context window, and then like get your answer, like, okay, cool. Now let me figure out, you don't need these other bits of context, I'm gonna take those out and then put these other things back in. And so you can kind of make the context window feel bigger than it actually is, and sort of increase the token limit that it can handle and process at once by strategically moving things in and out of it. One example of this that pertains to programming languages that comes to mind is, pure functions have all of their context right there in the type. It's like, here are the inputs, here are the outputs, there's no secret external state that you need to sort of bring into the context window. And from that, you know, on paper, that seems like it would be a benefit to LLMs. But again, with self-honesty, I'm not sure how much of a benefit it is. Like, I mean, maybe it's a big deal, but I wouldn't be surprised if it turned out. It's like, yeah, I mean, that that is a benefit, but it's not actually that big of a deal in practice. Relative to how much I feel as a human, it helps me out it might not actually help out the LLM as like proportionally as much. I don't know. But I have an intuition that it helps the LLM out less than it helps me as a human, but I don't really know one way or the other.
1: Interesting. I've generated a bit of functional code and a bit of totally non-functional like yeah. C-sharp code. Uh-huh. And I found that even though the, the data set is much smaller for, let's say, F-sharp, that my results have been slightly better huh. if I do certain things. So there are thick concepts that overlap the two languages. For example, something like a record, right? An object source record yeah. that is there, but something like an enum or discriminated union doesn't really exist in C sharp plane. And so little tricks like I feel the composability and the kind of obviousness of function declarations and, and type declarations and such that has been helping it, at least intuitively. But using esoteric language things like enums that, you know, C sharp and a lot of its training set doesn't have doesn't work so so i end up like basically getting it to output not quite what i want and i have to mutate it or transform it from that to the actual language so for example we have a bunch of test cases where we're regenerating or we have like one line tests where it's like left side equals right side and if that's true then the test passes and getting it to output in that format is difficult it doesn't know how to like sit by a specific format but if you get it to output a record of left side, right side, and then you transform the output of that to the actual code you want, then it works. Interesting. Went, went off a bit of the tangent there, but the, the point is if, if I, at least intuitively, I found that the language bits, it seems to benefit from the composability and such, but certainly the training set isn't theirs. And so, as you're asking that question, I'm curious about how much the training set will influence how well it's you know, good at dealing with state mutation and that kind of stuff, because it's so used to state mutation, but, you know, in in some theoretical world where most code that it's learning from doesn't have state mutation, it didn't have to learn it, how much better
0: might it be? Yeah, I mean, it, it might benefit from having more sort of exposure to that. But the thing that I'm particularly thinking about here is in terms of the context window, the more sort of implicit state that you have in scope, that needs to be made explicit if you want it to take it into account. And that takes up context window. I see. One of the things that I feel pretty confident about is that inheritance is not good for LLMs. Because if you're calling a method, you basically need to say, I need to give you all of these class definitions that are in the entire class hierarchy in order to figure out which one it's actually referring to here. And again, this might be a case where maybe an IDE can do a better job sort of strategically saying, oh, well, we know that in this code snippet that you're working with, it's always going to resolve to this one because that's how the class hierarchy works here. And it can sort of pre-resolve that for it. But if you don't have an IDE that's smart enough to do that for it, it really seems like that would be a way to blow up your context, waste a lot of your context window with a lot of like, oh, here's all of my class definitions that are involved in the entire class hierarchy of this thing because that's the only way for it to know actually which method is going to get called, like which piece of code is going to get called when I run this thing. Although, at the same time, I can also quite obviously tell when when working with ChatGPT in particular, that a lot of the time, it's really just guessing based on name. It's not actually, it doesn't know what the implementation is and it doesn't need to know. It's just like, okay, based on what this thing is named and what maybe it can guess the type is, it's just like, yeah, this is, we're going to call this, it's going to work and Quite often, it's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, it it guesses pretty well. <laughs> yeah, but then again, I mean, that works well until it doesn't, right? Until you have some code that you're trying to have it generate, and now maybe you chose a name that's not obvious enough because it's kind of domain-specific to the problem you're working on, and it just can't possibly guess what it is based on the name, and then suddenly that relying on that falls apart, and now it matters whether or not you have a class hierarchy. Hmm. Yeah.
1: Have you done any playing with uh like rolling your own LLMs and, and dealing with that and in vector databases and such?
0: Not yet. So the way that I've been thinking about this is I'm trying to avoid, I don't want to call it a go as far as to call it a trap, but the way that I'm trying to approach these things is to say, what do I think are the tools that will actually help me do programming, the type of programming I'm doing better today? And obviously thinking about the future and sort of trying to plan ahead. But what I want to avoid is spending a bunch of time doing exploration into things that I don't have a concrete idea what it would like do for me better. And I haven't so far been able to justify saying, here's a really good outcome that would help me out and make me more productive if I, you know, worked with Llama or something like that. Yeah. So I haven't done it yet. I'm assuming if you're interested in integrating these things in the dark, this is something you've looked into more. <laughs> yeah, we, we've looked into it. Again, we're not super deep
1: to a point where I can like report back with sophisticated findings. But it, it's certainly something we're looking into now.
0: Are there any interesting developments so far that you're comfortable sharing? Or is it sort of like you want to hold off and still in the exploratory phase and, and don't want to jump the gun on that?
1: Yeah, we're totally in exploratory phase. I mean, we have a few ideas of what the client might be. The big questions are, how do we get it to write good code, and what does the new client look like? And so those are two big open ended questions. Because like the we abandoned our old client, which was a reason ML based kind of web app, right? And we abandoned it for multiple reasons. And the question is like, okay, we could just create like a VS Code extension for Dark, but maybe not. Maybe it's something entirely different. So we're trying to keep a really open mind of what the client could be. So if anyone is has ideas of what the futuristic AI based client is, let
0: us know. But no, 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 nothing specific yet. We'll see what the outcome is. I'm guessing you've at least talked about why not just chat. Just you just chat everything to it. Say, build me a server and it does. It says here's the code. Then you say, What's the code for this? What does this function do? And it just tells you the answer. That doesn't seem like it would be awesome to me <laughs> typing out every question I have when I could just like click or press a you know keyboard shortcut <laughs> it's a lot slower to chat everything I'm open to chat everything
1: I'm also open to voice everything I have this this microphone here and I I'm kind of tinkering with one client idea which is totally voice command you're not allowed to use your keyboard or mouse and every command you do either is some kind of mutation to the code base or it's a mutation to the editor itself so you can you know, say commands like, oh, I want to open this file and it'll you know, bubble up open that file via some kind of message. So I think that's realistic. I would love to be able to like paste throughout my office with like low lapel mic and just kind of talk what code I want to exist and like just be able to refer back to the screen with what's there. But yeah, certainly chat only is is something that is a thing. And also like the, these plugins, like what would a dark chat GPT plugin look like?
0: I think that's that's an interesting maybe starting point it's really hard for me to imagine that it's optimal in the sense that like in the amount of time that it takes me to say open tab i would have like before i finish saying oh i would have you know hit command t and opened a new tab yeah there's definitely speed gains from keyboard shortcuts now having said that there's always interesting things that result when you give yourself really strict design constraints you always end up Finding in my experience, like interesting new designs that you probably wouldn't have thought up without those extreme constraints. So from that perspective, it might be a good idea to just embrace that as a really strict design constraint and see where it leads you. You can always add keyboard shortcuts and stuff later if you. Yeah. <laughs> but one thing that might happen is, I mean, maybe you end up just saying, "Okay, we'll just make some really fast sounds that are shortcuts." Like you say and that means open new tab, right? (laughs) So now you're pacing around your office, being like, okay, change this function, and then... (laughs) now we all start sounding like robots. (laughs) I, I genuinely
1: hope that's the future. I'm a very heavy keyboard shortcut user. As soon as I get into a tool, I invest heavily into all the keyboard shortcuts. So it'd be really comical to just be making sound effects or like lowering my left knee by like, you know, some amount, and that means right. openness or something. <laughs> that sounds like a joy. Anything that keeps you engaged with the process of writing software is great. If being silly is a step towards engagement, cool.
0: Yeah, awesome. Wow, this is a lot of fun. I, I I really enjoy talking to you about all these things because it's such a new. I don't know. It's a, there's a a lot of green fields happening right now, and nobody really knows exactly how they're all going to shake out. But it's really cool to hear about you know your Dark completely embracing this and just saying like what can we do like sky's the limit let's just try to take you know what exists right now and try to build something that really works well with it that's it's pretty cool to hear about
1: yeah I'm very excited to see how the next few months pan out
0: awesome well thanks so much for chatting with me I really appreciate it yep thank you for having me